Chapter Fourteen of the Mountain Girl. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Herndon Bell. The Mountain Girl by Payne Erskine. Chapter Fourteen, in which David visits the bishop, and Frail sees his enemy. The bishop was seated in a deep canvas chair on his wide veranda, looking out over his garden toward a distant line of blue hills. His little wife sat close to his side on a low rocker, very busy with the making of buttonholes in a small girl's frock of white dimity and lace. Betty Towers loved lace and pretty things. The small girl was playing about the garden paths with her puppy and chattering with Frail in her high, happy, childish voice while he bent weeding among the beds of okra and eggplant. His face wore a more than usually discontented look, even when answering the child with teasing banter. Now and then he lifted his eyes from his work and watched furtively the movements of David Thring who was pacing restlessly up and down the long veranda in earnest conversation with the bishop and his wife. The two in the garden could not understand what was being said at the house, but each party could hear the voices of the other, and by calling out a little could easily converse across the dividing hedge and the intervening space. Talk about the influence of the beautiful in nature upon the human soul. It is all very pretty but I believe the soul must be more or less enlightened to feel it. I've learned a few things among your people up there in the mountains. Strange beings they are. It only goes to show that heredity alone won't do everything, said the bishop, placing the tips of his fingers together and frowning meditatively. Heredity? It means a lot to us over there in England. Yes, yes. But your old families need a little new blood in them now and then, even if they have to come over here for it. For that and your money, yes, Thring laughed. But these mountain people of yours, who are they, anyway? Most of them are of as pure a strain of British as any in the world, as any you will find at home. They have their heredity, and only that, from all your classes over there but it is from those of a hundred or more years ago. They are the unmixed descendants of those you sent over here for gain, drove over by tyranny, or exported for crime. How unmixed in your most horribly mixed and mongrel population! Circumstances and environment have kept them to the pure stock, and neglect has left them untrammeled by civilization and unaided by education. Time and generations of ignorance have deteriorated them, and nature alone, as you were just now admitting, has hardly served to arrest the process by the survival of the fittest. Nature, yes. How do you account for it? I have been in the grandest, most wonderful places, I venture to say, that are to be found on earth, and among all the glory that nature can throw around a man, he is still, if left to himself, more bestial than the beasts. 
He destroys and defaces and defiles nature. He kills for the mere sake of killing more than he needs. He enslaves himself to his appetites and passions, follows them wildly, yields to them recklessly, and destroys himself and all the beauty around him that he can reach wantonly. Why, Bishop Towers, sometimes I've gone out and looked up at the stars above me and wondered which was real, they and the marvelous beauty all around me, or the three hundred reeking humanity sleeping in the camp beneath them. Sometimes it seemed as if only hell were real, and the camp was a bit of it let loose to mock at heaven. We mustn't forget that what is transitory is not a part of God's eternity of spirit and truth. Oh, yes, yes, but we do forget, and some transitory things are mighty hard to endure, especially if they must endure for a lifetime. David was thinking of Cassandra, and what in all probability would be her doom. He had not mentioned her name, but he had come down with the intention of learning all he could about her, and if possible, to whom she was promised. He feared it might be the low-browed, handsome youth, bending over the garden beds beyond the hedge, and his heart rebelled and cried out fiercely within him, What a waste! What a waste! Betty Towers, intent on her sewing, felt the thrill that intensified David's tone, and she too thought of Cassandra. She dropped her work in her lap and looked earnestly in her husband's face. James, I feel just as Dr. Thring does when I think of some things. When I see a tragedy come into a human soul, I feel that a lifetime of transitory things like that is hard to endure. Fancy, James. Think of Cassandra. You know her, Dr. Thring, of course. They live just below your place. She is the widow Farwell's daughter, but her name is Merlin. David arrested his impatient stride, and drawing a chair near her, dropped into it. What about her? he said. What is the tragedy? I think, Betty, the hills must keep their own secrets, said the bishop. His little wife compressed her lips, glanced over the hedge at the young man, who happened at the moment to have straightened from his bent position among the plants, and was gazing at their guest, then resumed her sewing. Is it something I must not be told? asked David quietly. But I may have my suspicions. Naturally, we can't help that. I think it is better to know the truth. I don't like suspicions. They are sure to lead to harm. James, let me put it to the doctor as I see it, and see what he thinks of it. As you please, dear. It's like this. Have you seen anything of that girl or observed her much? I certainly have. Then, of course, you can see that she is one of the best of the mountain people, can't you? Well, she has promised to marry. Promised to marry. Think of it. One of the wildest, most reckless of those mountain boys. One that she knows very well has been in illicit distilling. He is a lawbreaker in that way. And more than that, he drinks, and in a drunken row he shot dead his friend. Ah! David rose, turned away, and again paced the piazza. 
Then he returned to his seat. I see. The young man I tried to help off when I first arrived. Yes. There he is. I see. Handsome type. He's down there now, keeping quiet. How long it will last, no one knows. Justice is lax in the mountains. His father shot three or four men before he died himself of a gunshot wound, which he received while resisting the officers of the law. If there's a man left in the family to follow this thing up, Frail will be hunted down and arrested or shot. Otherwise, when things have cooled off a little up there, he'll go back and open up the old business, and the tragedy will be repeated. James, you know how often, after the best they could do and all their promises, they go back to it. I admit it's always a question. They don't seem to be content in the low country. I think it is often a sort of natural gravitation back to the mountains where they were born and bred more than it is depravity. I know, James, but that excuse won't help Cassandra. Why did she do it? asked David. She must have known to what such a marriage would bring her. Do it! That's the sort of girl she is. If she thought she ought, she would leap over that fall there. But why should she think she ought? Had she given her promise? David saw her as she appeared to him when she had said that word to him on the mountain, and it silenced him, but only for a moment. He would learn all he could of her motives now. He must, he would know. I mean, before he did this, before she went away to study, had she made him such a promise? No. You tell him about it, James. You've seen her and talked with her. They were quarreling about her, as I understand, and she thinks, because she was the cause of the deed, she must help him make retribution. Isn't that it, James? She knows perfectly well what it means for her, for she has had her aspirations. I can see it all. Frale says he was not drunk, nor his friend either. He says the other man claimed, but I won't go into that. Only Cassandra promised him before God, he says that if he would repent, she would marry him. And when she was here, she used to talk about the way those women live, how her own mother has worked and aged. Well, she's not yet sixty. You've seen how they live in their wretched little cabins, Doctor. That's what Frail would doom her to. He never in life will understand her. He'll grow old like his father, a passionate, ignorant, untamed animal, and worse, for he would be drunken as well. He's been drunk twice since he came down here. James, you know they think it's perfectly right to get drunk Saturday afternoon. Yes, it seems a terrible waste. But if she has children, she will be able to do more for them than her mother has done for her, and they will have her inheritance. So her life can't be wholly wasted, even if she's not able to live up to her aspirations. James Towers, I... That it's because you are a man that you can talk so. I am ashamed, and you a bishop. I wish, Betty's eyes were full of angry tears. I only wish you were a woman. Slowly improve the race by bearing children, giving them her inheritance. How would she bear them, year after year, ill-fed, half-clothed, slaving to raise enough to hold their souls in their bodies, 
bringing them into the world for a brute who knows only enough to make corn whiskey, to sell it and drink it, and reproduce his kind, when, when she knows all the time what ought to be. Oh, James, James, think of it. My dear, my dear, you forget. He has promised to repent and live a different life. If he does, things will be better than we now see them. If he does not change, then we may interfere, perhaps. I know, James, but... But suppose he repents, and she becomes his wife, and puts aside all her natural tastes, and the studies she loves, and goes on living with him there on the home place, and he does the best he can, even. Don't you see that her nature is fine and... and so different? Even at the best, James, for her it will be death in life. And then there is a terrible chance, after all, that he might go back and be like his father before him. And then what? Well, their lives and destinies are not in our hands. We can only watch out for them and help them. James, he has been drunk twice. Yes, yes, Betty, my little tempest. And if he gets drunk twice more and twice more, she will still forgive him until seventy times seven. We must make her see that unless he keeps his promise to her, she must give him up. Of course. I suppose that's all we can do. I don't know what you'll think of me, Dr. Thring. I'm a dreadful scold. If James were not an angel... It's perfectly delicious. I would rather hear you scold than... Then hear James preach, laughed the bishop. I agree with you. I agree with her, said David emphatically. It ought to be stopped if... If it ought to be, it will be. What do you think she said to me about it when I went to reason with her? If Christ can forgive and stand such as he, I can. It is laid on my soul to do this. I had no more to say. That is one point of view, but we mustn't lose sight of the practical either. To be his wife and bear his children, I call it a waste, a... Yes, yes, so it is. And what more could the bishop say? After a little he added, But still, we must not forget that he too is a human soul and has a value as great as hers. According to your viewpoint, but not to mine, not to mine. If a man is enslaved to his own appetites, he has no right to enslave another to them. The following day, David took himself back to his hermitage, setting aside all persuasions to remain. Don't make a recluse of yourself, begged the bishop's wife. The amenities of life can't always be dispensed with, and we need you, James and I, you and your music. David laughed. I'm too fatally human to become a recluse. And as for the amenities, they are not all of one order, you know. I find plenty of scope for exercising them on others, and I often submit to having them exercised on me, after their own ideas. He laughed again. I wish you could look into my larder. You'd find me provided with all the hills afford. They have loaded me with gifts. No wonder. I know what your life up there means to them, taking care of their mothers and babies and sitting up with them nights, going to them when they're in trouble, rain or shine, and visiting them in their bare, wretched, crowded homes. 
it wouldn't be so bad often if it weren't that when a family's in serious trouble or has a case needing quiet and care the sympathies of all their relatives are roused and they come crowding in in one case the father was ill with pneumonia i did all i could for him and next day would you believe it i found his sister and her old man and their three youngsters his old mother and a brother and a widowed sister all camped down on them all in one room the sister sat by the fire nursing her three-month-old baby his mother was smoking at her side and the sick man's six little children and their three cousins were raising ned in and out with three or four hounds not one of the visitors was helping or as they say up there doing a lick but the wife was cooking for the whole raft when her husband needed all her care marvelous ideas they have some of them you ought to write out some of your experiences oh i can't it would seem like a sort of betrayal of friendship they have adopted me so to speak and are so naive and kind and have trusted me i think they are my friends i may be very odd you know i know how you feel said betty the bishop's little daughter had assumed the proprietorship of the doctor she even preferred his companionship to that of her puppy she clung to his hand as he walked away pulling and swinging upon his arm to coax him back he took her in his arms and carried her out upon the walk the small dog barking and snapping at his heels as david threatened to bear his tyrannical young mistress away to the station doggy wants you to leave me here she cried pounding him vigorously with her two little fists he brought her back and placed her on the broad flat top of the high gatepost very well doggy may have you i will leave you here doggy wants you to stay too she held him with her small arms around his neck well doggy can't have me he unclenched her chubby hands crossed them in her lap and held them fast while he kissed her tanned and rosy cheek good-bye you young rogue he said and strode away come and lift me down she wailed but he knew well she could scramble down by herself when she chose and walked on she continued to call after him then spying frale in the wood-yard she imperatively summoned him to her aid and trotted at his side back to the woodpile where they sat comfortably upon a log and visited together they were the best of friends and chattered with each other as if both were children in the slender shadow of a juniper tree that stood like a sentinel in the corner of the wood-yard they sat where a high board fence separated them from the back street the bishop's place was well planted and this corner had been the quarters of the house servants in slave times it was one of frail's duties to pile here for winter use the firewood which he cut in short lengths for the kitchen fire and long lengths for the open fireplaces he hated the hampered village life and round of small duties the weeding in the garden cleaning of piazzas and windows and the sweeping of the paths the wood-cutting was not so bad but the rest he held in contempt as women's work he longed to throw his gun in the hollow of his arm and tramp off over his own mountains at night he often wept for homesickness and wished he might spend the day tending still 
or lying on a ridge watching the trail below for intruders on his privacy. The joy of life had gone out of him. He thought continually of Cassandra and desired her. And his soul wearied for her until he was tempted to go back to the mountains at all risks merely for a sight of her. Painfully, he had tried to learn to write, working at the copies Betty Towers had set for him. And certainly she had done all her conscientious heart prompted to interest him and keep him away from the village loungers. He had even progressed far enough to send two horribly spelled missives to Cassandra, feeling great pride in them. And now he had begun to weary of learning. To be able to write those badly scrawled notes was in his eyes surely enough to distinguish him from his companions at home. Of what use was more? What's that you're tossing up in the air? Let me see it, demanded the child, as Frale tossed and caught again a small bright object. He kept on tossing it and catching it, away from the two little hands stretched out to receive it. Give it to me! Give it to me, Frale! Let me see it! He dropped it lightly in her palm. Don't you lose it. That there's something that's got a charm to it. What's a charm to it? I don't see any charm. Then Frale laughed aloud. He took it with his thumb and forefinger and held it between his eye and the sun. Is that the way you see the charm to it? Let me try. But he slipped it in his pocket, first placing it in a small bag, which he drew up tightly with a string. It ain't nothing you can see. It's only a charm that makes it plumb sure to kill anybody as it hits. It's plumb sure to hit and plumb sure to kill, too. Oh, Frail, what if it had hit me when you threw it up that way and kill me? Then you'd be sorry, wouldn't you, Frail? It wouldn't never kill a girl, a nice little girl like you be. It's charmed that away, and it won't kill nobody that I don't want it to. Then what do you keep it in your pocket for? You don't want to kill anybody, do you, Frail? Nah, I reckon not. Not that I have to. But you don't have to, do you, Frail? piped the child. He rose and selecting an armful of stove wood, carried it into the shed, and began packing it away. Dorothy sat still on the log, her elbows on her knees, her chin in her hands, meditating. A tall man slouched by, and peered over the high board fence at her. His eyes roved all about the place eagerly, keen and black. His matted hair hung long beneath his soft felt hat, the child looked up at him with fearless, questioning glance, then trotted in to her friend. Frail, did you see that man looking over the fence? You think he was looking for you, Frail? Come see who tis. Perhaps he's a friend of yours. Dorothy, Dorothy, called her mother from the piazza, and the child bounded away, her puppy yelping and leaping at her side. The tall man turned at the corner, and looked back at the child. The bishop's place occupied one corner of the block, and the fence, with a hedge beneath it, ran the whole length of two sides. Slowly sauntering along the second side, the gaunt, hungry-eyed man continued his way, searching every part of the yard and garden, even endeavoring, with backward, furtive glances, 
to see into the wood-house, where in the darkness Frail crouched, once more pallid with abject fear, peering through the crack where on its hinges the door swung half open. As the man disappeared down the straggling village street, Frale dropped down on the wheelbarrow and buried his haggard face in his hands. A long time he sat thus, until the dinner hour was past, and Black Carrie had to send Dorothy to call him. Then he rose, but in the place of the white and haunted look was one of stubborn recklessness. He strolled to the house with the nonchalant air of one who fears no foes, but rather glories in meeting them, and sat himself down at his place by the kitchen table, where he bantered and badgered Carrie, who waited on him reluctantly with contemptuous tosses of her woolly head. From the day of his first appearance there had been war between them, and now Frale knew that if the stranger asked her, she would gladly and slyly inform against him. The afternoon wore on. Again Frale sat on the wheelbarrow thinking, thinking. He took the small bag from his pocket and felt of the bullet through the thin covering, then replaced it, and drawing forth another bag, began counting his money over and over. There it was, all he had saved, five dollars in bills and a few quarters and dimes. He did not like to leave the shelter of the shed, and his eyes showed only the narrow glint of blue, as with half-closed lids he still peered out and watched the street where his enemy had disappeared. Suddenly he rose and climbed with swift, cat-like movements up the ladder stairs behind him, which led to his sleeping loft. There he rapidly donned his best suit of dyed homespun, tied his few remaining articles of clothing in a large red kerchief, and before a bit of mirror arranged his tie and hair, to look as like as possible to the village youth of Farrington. The distinguishing silken lock that would fall over his brow had grown again, since he had shorn it away in Dr. Thring's cabin. Now he thrust it well up under his soft felt hat, and taking his bundle, descended. Again his eyes searched up and down the street, and all about the house and yard, before he ventured out in the daylight. Dorothy and her dog came bounding down the kitchen steps. She carried two great fried cakes in her little hands, warm from the hot fat, and she laughed with glee as she danced toward him. Frail, frail, I stole these, I did, for you. I told Carrie I wanted two for you, and she said, Go long, child. She thrust them in his hands. What's the matter, frail? What you all dressed up for? This isn't Sunday, Frail. Is they going to be a circus, Frail, is they? She poured forth her questions rapidly as she hopped from one foot to the other. Will you take me, Frail, if it's a circus? I'll ask Mama. I want to see the elephant. Tain't no circus, he replied grimly. What's the matter, Frail? Don't you like your fried cakes? Then why don't you eat them? What you wrapping them up for? You ought to say thank you when I bring you nice cakes that I went and stole for you, she remonstrated severely. His throat worked convulsively as he stood, now looking at the child, now watching the street. Suddenly he lifted her in his arms, 
and buried his face in her gingham apron. I had a little sister once, only she's growed up now, and she ain't my little sister any more. He kissed her brown cheek tenderly, even as David had done, and set her gently down on her two stubby feet. You run in and tell your ma thank you for me, will you? Mind now. Listen at me whilst I tell you what you tell your pa and ma for me. Say, Frail seen a hound dog on his scent, and he gone home to get shed of him. Where's the hound dog, Frail? She gazed fearfully about. He's gone now. He won't bite. Not you he won't. Oh, Frail, I wish it was a circus. Yes drawled the young man with a sullen smile curling his lips. Maybe it be a sort of circus. Can you remember what I told you to tell your pa? You, you seen a hound dog on, on a scent. How could he be on a scent? Say, Frail seen a hound dog on his scent, and he gone home to get shed of him. Frail? seen a hound dog on on a on a scent and and he's gone home to get shed of him what's get shed of him frail never mind honey your pa'll know run in and tell him for you forget it good-bye she danced gaily off toward the house but turned to call back at him as he stood watching her are you going to hit the hound dog with the pretty ball, Frail? <laughs> I reckon, he laughed and strode off toward the one small station in the opposite direction from the way the man had taken. Frail knew well where he had gone. On the outskirts of the village was a small grove of sycamore and gum trees by a little stream where it was the custom for the mountain people to camp with their canvas-covered wagons. There they would build their fires on a charred place between stones and heat their coffee. There they would feed their oxen or mule team, tied to the rear wheels of their wagons, with corn thrown on the ground before them. At nightfall they would crawl under the canvas cover and sleep on the corn fodder within. Often beneath the fodder might be found a few jugs of raw corn whiskey hidden away, while the articles they had brought down for sale or barter at the village stores were placed on top in plain view. Sometimes they brought vegetables, or baskets of splints and willow withes made by their women, or they might have a few yards of homespun toweling. The man Frail had seen was the older brother of his friend Ferdinand Teasley, and well Frail knew that he was camped with his ox team down by the spring, where it had been his habit to wait for the cover of darkness when he could steal forth and leave his jugs where the money might be found for them placed on some rock or stump or fallen trunk half concealed by laurel shrubs. How often had the products of frail still been conveyed down the mountain by that same ox team in that same unwieldy vehicle? Giles Teasley's cabin and patch of soil, planted always to corn, was a long distance from his father's mill, and also from his brother's still, hence he could, with the more safety, dispose of their illicit drink. In the slow but deadly sure manner of his people, 
he had but just aroused himself to the fact that his brother's murderer was still alive and the deed unavenged. And Frale knew he had come now, not to dispose of the whiskey, since the still had been destroyed, but to find his brother's slayer and accord him the justice of the hills. To the mountain people, the processes of the law seemed vague and uncertain. They preferred their own methods. A well-loaded gun, a sure aim, and a few months of hiding among relatives and friends, until the vigilance of the emissaries of the law had subsided, was the rule for them. Thus had Frail's father twice escaped either prison or the rope, and during the last four years of his life, he had never once ventured from his mountain home for a day at the settlements below, while among his friends his prowess and his skill in evading pursuit were his glory. Now it was Frail's thought to dare the worst, to walk to the station like any village youth, buy his ticket, and take the train for Carew's Crossing, and from there make his way to his haunt while yet Giles Teasley was taking his first sleep. He reasoned, and rightly, that his enemy would linger about several days searching for him, and never dream of his having made his escape by means of the train. Since the first scurry of search was over, it was no longer the officers of the law Frail feared, but the same lank, ill-favored mountaineer, who was now warming his coffee and eating his raw salt pork and cornbread by the stream while his drooling cattle stood near, sleepily chewing their cuds. End of chapter 14